Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. everyone welcome to episode one of true blue true crime pretty excited to be here i'm your host sean and i'm joined by my lovely co-host chloe how are you hello everyone welcome to our very first episode it's been a lot of work to get to this point so we're, we're pretty pumped about getting into the first case today we're going to launch straight into things close so a bit of housekeeping to begin with true blue true crime if i can say that without mucking it up it's going to be a weekly podcast and we're going to be doing exclusively australian criminal cases so we're going to release additional content to our patreon supporters the aim is on a weekly basis could be fortnightly to begin with until we hit our stride but that's the goal and if you'd like to support the show, head on over to our Patreon page. The link will be in the show notes on whatever app you are listening to. Patreon is super simple. You can even use your Facebook profile to sign up and support the show with a simple click. Yeah, it's like buying something off eBay. So a couple of dollars a month, you're going to get your exclusive Patreon episodes and we're going to go pretty hard on that. We're going to do Q&As behind the scenes, blooper reels if we screw up enough. And when we get our merch store up and running, we'll give uh, 10% off to our Patreons there as well because everyone who gets behind us on that front, they're paying for the content that we produce. So you folks deserve the uh, extra love. But if getting behind us on Patreon's not your thing, we understand. We love you too for just listening to the regular episodes. There's other ways that you can spread the love uh, for us and support the show. Tell your friends and work colleagues. I mean, that's how we got into podcasts, right, Chloe? Mm. uh, Word of mouth, that goes a long way. And Chloe will be doing a Facebook discussion group for us and Instagram and all that jazz. Yep, and if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes or whatever app you use and feel free to write a review as well. Um, You can wait till after the episode to tell one this stage since it's episode one unless our stories really wowed you, Um, but we'd really appreciate the support. No shit reviews, no one-star reviews. Just hold <laughs> off on that until we uh, until we get a bit of backbone and a thick skin. But uh, we're going to hit the ground running today, Chloe, with a case that absolutely saturated the media here in Australia at the time. 
it dominated it with stories of the victims thereafter and then it honed in on the police response, which inevitably culminated in an inquest and a coroner's finding in the years after. We're talking about the Sydney siege, which you guys probably know listening out there because you've clicked on it and it said Sydney siege. That's also known as the Lint Cafe siege. It's a really big case. It's not been widely covered in podcast form. The uh, True Crime Sisters did a really great rundown of it on their podcast, but there's not much else on it. And we're going to do our take and not just discuss the siege itself, but deep dive into the details of the perpetrator and the police response to it. And like you said, not many people have done it in podcast. There are a lot of moving parts to this, which makes for an interesting story, but also poses the challenge of putting all the puzzle pieces together in a way that actually makes sense. And even though I know what's going to happen, I am excited to hear this story again. It's such a harrowing tale and so many people went through so much. Yeah, absolutely. Fingers crossed we've done it justice. So let's dive into it. Thirteenth of December, two thousand and fourteen. Australia's anti-terrorism hotline receives a call from an anonymous citizen who reports concerns about content on a particular website. On the website, a man pledged his allegiance to the Caliph of Muslims and denounced moderate Islam. The Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, known locally as ASIO, reviewed the website and associated social media posts by the man in question, but he didn't meet the criteria to categorise him in the top 400 immediate threats within the country, and it was evaluated he was unlikely to commit an act of violence. Two days later, at approximately 8.30am on Monday the 15th of December, a bearded man wearing a black cap and carrying a dark sports bag entered the Lint Cafe in Martin Place, Sydney CBD, a central business district in close proximity to major television studios, banks and an underground railway station. He conversed briefly with a lawyer who'd represented him in a prior court case and after the lawyer left, he sat down at table 36 near the front of the cafe, ordering a cup of tea followed by a slice of chocolate velour cheesecake from a young waitress named Fiona. A short time later, he moved to table 40, which was a booth seat at the rear of the cafe, and requested to speak with the cafe manager. Fiona fetched her manager, a man named Tori, who came and spoke with the customer. The bearded man demanded all entrances be locked, explaining to Tori that he had a bomb in his backpack, one of four located in the surrounding areas, and once the doors were locked, proceeded to emphasise to the customers and staff, who were now his hostages, that this was an attack by the Islamic State. He withdrew a sawn-off, pump-action shotgun from his sports bag and began ordering the hostages around the room, separating them into smaller groups and having them face outward onto Martin Place through the cafe windows. The man ordered some of the hostages to hold a black standard flag with white Arabic script up in the window. He'd now removed his cap and jacket, donning the backpack and what hostages would later describe as being almost like battle dress, black head and wristbands with white Arabic inscriptions. All 18 occupants of the Lint Cafe would be hostages in a harrowing siege that would continue for a further 18 hours. And the maniac at the centre of it all? Well, it was the same man from the reported website. Man Haron Monis. 
Okay, so we're in the Lint Chocolate Cafe in Sydney. It's just another Monday morning, start of the business week. People are filtering into their workplaces, stopping for their morning coffees. Man Haron Mones has taken 18 hostages, with some being forced to hold up a black flag in the front windows of the cafe. I think it's also important to note the opulence of this location. The Link Cafe isn't some small nook coffee shop. We're talking about a prime corner location, big high ceilings, stone pillars, and ornate plaster and glasswork inside. Yeah, and this flag the hostages are being made to hold up has the Ashadar written in Arabic letters. Now, this is a creed of the Islamic faith, one of five pillars in Islam, essentially declaring that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Now, if we go back to this time, there was a heightened sense of fear surrounding terrorist attacks in connection with the Islamic extremist group ISIL, who Tony Abbott, our Prime Minister at the time, and I stress at the time, we've had a few since then, haven't we, Chloe? Mm. Endearingly referred to as a death cult, but... That term didn't really catch on, did it? So they were also known as the uh, Islamic State of Iraq and the Levant, Islamic State of Iraq and Al-Sham, Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, just plain IS, and also Daesh. We could get into a whole background of the group, which we might do on a Patreon episode at some point, but essentially, if you don't know, they're a terrorist group who came to prominence in early 2014 when they invaded and captured effective control of the Iraqi city Mosul. And they've been around a while before that, actually, in various forms, but that's a snapshot. You'd had many widely and less publicised terrorist incidents through the 2000s, obviously the Twin Towers attack, but the most well-known and recent at the time was the Boston bombings in 2013 and a more local incident earlier in 2014 in Endeavour Hills, Victoria, where a young 18-year-old Newman Hayter was shot and killed after the attempted stabbing of two counter-terrorism police officers. And the reason we mention all of this is because initially the widely held belief was that the black standard flag being held up in the windows was the ISIS flag, which led to the media and broader community as a result to consider this a terrorist attack by that extremist group. But further investigation showed that it wasn't, certainly similar, but if you delve into the black standard flag, its origin and use in Islam and the variation of the wording and additional seal on the ISIS flag... If he intended to do this for that, he got it wrong. We'll see as we look into Monas himself that that's really the theme of this guy. Not only was he a friggin' nut job, but a very insecure man who wanted to fit into a group, any group really, just to find his place in life. And I think we've all known someone like that to a much less severe extent, but I think this angle gets a step closer to the real motivations of Monas. We'll get into him in more detail as we go along. I just think it's important to set the scene of how this was perceived in real time from the start and how it all unfolded. Now we get to the hostages. So there were 18 in total and they'd be all identified at different stages throughout the siege, Chloe. So the hostages, we had Tori Johnson, the cafe manager, and seven employees of the cafe, Paolo Vasilio, Harriet Denny, Ali Chen, April Bay, Joel Harat, Fiona Ma, and Jared Morton Hoffman. They all did differing roles from food prep to waiting tables, baristas, etc. Some were part-time studying at uni. I should also note that Harriet Denny, I believe, was around 14 weeks pregnant at the time of the siege. Mm. The good news is she does survive and actually went on to have a baby girl named Billy. 
There were also four Westpac bank employees, Marsha McHale, Paspendu Ghosh, Viswakant Ankaredi, and Selena Winpay. The uh, last, who I believe was also pregnant at the time, we had three barristers, not baristas, barristers, Katrina Dawson, Stefan Balafutis, and Julie Taylor. Julie was also pregnant at the time, and she too survived this ordeal and went on to have her own baby girl, Emily. Sitting near them prior to when the siege began and exchanging some pleasantries uh, with Katrina about her shoes was Robin Hope and Louisa Hope, a mother and daughter catching a morning coffee and bite to eat before a nearby appointment. And last but definitely not least, John O'Brien, who was a former professional tennis player actually, active in the 50s and the 60s. So all these people were involved and at this point things obviously became very real for them and pretty soon the outside world would get wind of this and go into the expected response, absolute chaos. Customers arriving at the cafe realising what was happening and fleeing, nearby buildings going into lockdown and police rolling in from all over, ununiformed officers, nearby undercover detectives and tactical squads. Thousands of people would be evacuated from nearby buildings. Others went into lockdown, dozens of businesses closed, schools implemented lockdowns, major landmarks like the Opera House would come under scrutiny with reports surfacing of suspicious packages being found. Martin Place itself a hotspot in Sydney, would become a stage exclusion zone with trains at the railway station beneath continuing to run but not stopping at the Martin Place platforms. There is also a whole heap of prominent buildings in this area, parliamentary offices, flagship locations for the big banks, law chambers and the Channel 7 studios. Channel 7 is probably the biggest television network in Australia, I suppose that, and Channel 9. But Monus had a real unhealthy obsession with the network's breakfast show Sunrise. He'd appeared numerous times at these studios when the show was filming in the months beforehand, just stirring up shit basically. He'd hand out flyers accusing people of being terrorists and all sorts of other crazy stuff. But at this point, no one knew that Monus was the armed assailant inside the Lint Cafe just yet. He was communicating through his hostages, various demands to speak on ABC radio and with the Prime Minister. And at this point as well, we go to the police, and as you'd expect, the upper echelons of the state police force had some pretty heavy decisions to make at this time. Commissioner Andrew Scipioni was tasked with the big call of declaring this a terrorist incident or not. Now, in hindsight, that might seem like an obvious call to make, but at the time, if you can imagine the sheer pandemonium of this event, keeping in mind that there's squads with sniffer dogs roaming the various areas that this madman said uh, his brothers have planted explosive devices, and they don't know who this guy is or what he wants yet. So it's an important decision to make because it completely changes the response to the incident. Labelling it a terrorist incident all of a sudden brings in the feds the AFP and ASIO, and they come into the fold via a swath of procedural doctrine that would be implemented immediately should this call be made. And this was known as the Force uh, Pioneer Protocols, which included the investigative response of Strike Force Eagle from the feds. Some real uh, Olympus has fallen type shit, Chloe. <laughs> Scipioni made the call around 11am and thereafter he and his deputy, Catherine Byrne, were effectively constrained with what they could do or say to anyone. 
the effective control and calling of the shots went over to those who were trained specifically in these protocols. Operational Commander Mick Fuller was also hamstrung. He gives the go-ahead for the release of nine of the 18 hostages in return for the madman being allowed to talk on ABC radio. However, the negotiation commander decided not to do so because it conflicted with a policy in these protocols not to negotiate with terrorists. Yeah, the police are also going through this ongoing task of identifying the hostages at this point, which to me sounds like it was just an absolute cock-up. I mean, through all the bureaucracy of command handovers, negotiators, the protocols, they wouldn't know the exact amount of hostages and their names until the siege actually ended. And there was just so much missed information within the hierarchy. get to the identification of man Haron Monis, there were two detectives, senior constables Adam Thompson and Melanie Staples. Now they were involved in a previous strike force investigation into the murder of Monis's ex-wife. Monis and his new partner, Amira Drudis, had been charged in connection with his ex-wife's murder and bailed by the court to appear at trial. Now around 11.30am, the pair, had, the detectives, had seen footage of the siege and the offender, and they had a pretty strong inkling that it was Monus at this point. But it wouldn't be until 3.30pm, so what's that, four hours later, after all the red tape and escalation, the formal submissions, reports, briefings, etc., that the gunman's identity was confirmed as Man Haron Monus. This pen is my gun. And these words are my bullets. I'll fight with these weapons against oppression to promote peace. So who was this guy, Chloe? Yeah, so not to give him more airtime than he deserves, but it is important to understand some of the workings of his mind to see who could be motivated to do such a thing. Absolutely. He was born Mohammed Hassan Mantegi in the 19th of May, 1964, in Burijad, Iran. He was from a working-class family. He was raised Shia Muslim. He grew up in a time of political change where basically religion ruled, and there was a guy named Ayatollah Khomeini in charge in Iran, and he kind of led this Islamic revolution of sorts, overthrowing the previous leader, I believe. And Manes started dating a girl at university whose father was socially well-respected. He had connections both religiously and politically. So when Manes and this young woman named Zahir Mobasari married around 1985, Manes would be upper peg in the class ranks. The couple would have a pair of daughters in the coming years and Manes would get a grasp of English, climb up the religious ranks to the status of teacher in faith, while moving into a bunch of unscrupulous business ventures, such as a travel agency selling tyres and textiles. There'd also be whispers of his involvement with the intelligence services. But it wouldn't be long before Manise brewed up a fresh pot of trouble for himself and ended up organising a visa to Australia through his own travel agency. 
He got a visa through the Australian Embassy in Tehran saying he was meeting with BHB Billiton then when he showed up in the carpet trading business. Yeah, so he was meant to be like an iron ore consultant prior to that, wasn't he? <laughs> it's related. Yeah. But at this point, shit gets really murky with Monus, and this is either grain-of-salt type stuff, uh, a wisp of truth blown out of proportion by the man, or all true, which is probably doubtful. There'd been mentions of his involvement with intelligence services, and that would inevitably be weaved through a big saga with his getting a protection visa here in Australia, which he'd eventually get in the year 2000, and that meant he could claim government benefits. So in 2001, Iran authorities would put out an arrest warrant for Monis. They'd claimed that he'd embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars through his travel agency and then fled the country. Monis countered this claim, as he would many times, with a story tying in intelligence agencies, spying and blackmail. It would become apparent over time that Monis had abused his first wife and fled having stolen the money, and also under a cloud of sexual assault allegations. It was alleged that he greatly suffered from being a nobody. He moved to Perth then back to Sydney, all the while doing various jobs like security and carpet sales. He was big on carpet, Monis, Persian rugs, I gather, especially. Uh, He was kind of like a psychopathic Aladdin, this guy. (laughs) It was around this time he started protesting for various causes associated with his religion and homeland, chaining himself to government buildings, etc. I'll gloss over this not to diminish the significance of of those issues at the time, but more so because of Monis's lack of true dedication to those causes. I mean, the dude was driving, he had like a rotational lineup of Mercs and Jeeps and Peugeots, so he was living in an Ocean View apartment as well. So he was hardly feeling the pinch of his brothers back in the Middle East, I think. And he started going by the name Michael Hasten Mavros around this time, and he started calling himself a spiritual healing consultant, which is so gross. <laughs> So once again, we see this guy creating a facade like a slimy chameleon, trying to appear a particular way, changing his name, stating that he even had Egyptian Greek heritage now. So with his spiritual healing angle, he had an office set up like a doctor's office. He unfortunately would prey on vulnerable and mistreated women in these cases, many immigrants, and reassure them with the subterfuge of a doctor's surgery then have them undress, paint them in all these healing liquids and end up raping them. He recorded much of it with a camera above his computer, which police would find years later after the siege. But this went on for a few years before any victims came forward. In the end, he had around 40 charges related to sexual assault laid against him only a short time before the siege. 2004 now and Mavros, Marcos, Monis, whatever you want to call him by this point, He had Australian citizenship. So let's cover off his many female relationships here, Chloe. Yes, and relationships is probably a strong word for this, (laughs) judging by the way he treated people, but he was connected to these women. Um, He was married in Iran. They had two daughters who he abandoned for Australia. He was with two other women between his arrival and remarried in Australia to a woman under the pseudonym Helen Lee. I did find her real name when researching this, but it is currently suppressed by the court. So out of respect for her and her family, that's what we'll continue to call her and Mm. that seems to be the common accepted pseudonym, so we'll stick with that. They had two boys and Monice played very much the intermediate 
part in all of their lives, coming back into the fold as he saw fit. During this marriage, Moniz had an ongoing affairs with at least three women, one of them being a woman he would eventually leave his second wife for, Amiria Drudis. She was Monet's third wife. She was from a Greek Orthodox background and she had a daughter of her own, I believe. She would inevitably follow Monet's down the radicalist path. Before we get too far ahead, though, just backing up to Monis's second marriage with Helen Lee, who, as you said, that's not her real name, but her real name is suppressed by the courts. The story of her brutal murder at the hands of Amira Drudis and Monis is absolutely sickening. We will get into that case in a bit more detail on our Patreon episode this week because I mean, it's an, an entire episode uh, or case in itself, um, but it's important to mention it now because it's pertinent to the siege story in contextualising Monis, the man. And the marriage between Helen Lee and Monis deteriorated very quickly. Monis not being one to go past the honeymoon period, obviously, he really had no religious persuasions to begin with. He was smoking, drinking, clubbing, wearing Western clothing, etc. And he was already a scumbag, having affairs, sexually assaulting women, as uh, as you mentioned there, Chloe. It was around 2007 after the birth of Liam Monis's second son that Monis grew his beard out, he abandoned the Western clothes, he stopped listening to music and drinking alcohol. By 2008, when Lee and Monis's marriage was over, he'd hooked up with Amira Drudis, and to the shock of her family, they'd gone pretty extreme, starting a website, vlogging and blogging about death to the West, essentially. Every fanciful thing that your mind can dream up about what these two idiots would come up with, they did it. They praised 9-11, the Bali bombings, the Holocaust. They even sent letters to uh, servicemen calling them murderers. I mean, if you see any of their videos, and they're out there on some pretty... Um, unreputable sites, mostly taken down now, but you can find them and they're what you'd imagine. And Lee and Moness would be in heated custody battles for the boys over this time, at which time Moness tried to leech onto the chapter of the local rebels outlaw MC. They all figured him out for a dickhead and a creep, which he was, rolling in in bandanas and wallet chains. But he was two-faced, running his blog one minute saying one thing and then rolling in like Jax Teller, hitting up <laughs> members for guns and knives and finally asking for help to kill his ex-wife. He was sent packing, obviously. On Sunday the 21st of April, Monice's ex-wife Helen was murdered outside her apartment. A short time later, Monice and Drewis would be charged. Drudis for the murder, Monice as an accessory. We are going to cover that in more detail on our Patreon episode this week, but the end result in the lead-up to the siege was Moniz and Drudis would both be let out on bail, a baffling decision then and to this day. From here, September 2014 onwards, really, Moniz's activity would really ramp up. He'd already been looked into numerous times by intelligence services, uh, but was continually assessed as no imminent threat, essentially. He'd ramped up his Twitter and his videos and attended uh, demonstrations denouncing his former belief in Shia Islam for Sunni Islam and pledging allegiance to the Islamic State Caliphate. Now, there were 18 calls to the National Security Hotline about Monis's Facebook page in the week before the siege, but he was once again assessed as no immediate threat. That was until he rolled into the Lint Cafe on Monday the 15th of December 
2014. So we're back inside the Lint Cafe and things are not at a standstill inside the cafe itself at all. Monis is flipping like a switch between calm and agitated. He's adamant on this being credited as an ISIS attack, but the word isn't getting out there. In fact, folks are coming on the radio talking about the flag and saying that it's not legitimate, which angers Monis. He starts trying to get the words out through hostages that he wants a proper Daesh flag delivered to the cafe now. One moment he's seemingly nice, letting some of the older hostages sit and rest, and then he's going off on spiels and threatening hostages a moment later. And he'd given nicknames to a few of the males who he clearly saw as a threat, trying to diminish their standing in the situation and I think maybe dehumanising them in a weird kind of attempted alpha male style. Mm. So he was calling John O'Brien old man, Stefan Belafucius was white shirt um, and Tory Johnson was simply manager. I think O'Brien the, is a bit of a wily, crafty old tennis veteran. He really got under Monis's skin and, and on his nerves in particular, regularly engaging him in back-and-forth conversations, essentially whinging but trying to distract Monis or throw him off his game. He was a real uh, real servant volleyer, old O'Brien. <laughs> and Monis engaged his original waiter, waitress, Fiona Ma, to be a kind of gopher for the siege. So she'd take people into bathroom breaks and take drinks of water around to everyone. He seemed to have an element of trust in her. I, maybe he thought he could manipulate her. Mm. Um, he'd also engaged a few other girls, I think, Marsha was one of them um, to be the phone person take, talking to the outside to relay his intentions and demands, which weren't that clear even at this point, several hours into the siege. He'd just asked to speak with Tony Abbott for a flag. Then he engaged a young waiter, Jared, to call up the radio station 2DB to speak with the presenter, Ray Hadley. Hadley handled all of this incredibly well and after a briefly aired conversation kept calls with Jared off air and contacted the commissioner directly. Hadley was of the mindset that he wasn't a hostage negotiator so he wasn't going to air the calls and get caught up in something that could lead to a lot of lost lives. But when it was reported that Jared was seemingly quite calm on the phone and Moniz heard this while monitoring the radios inside the cafe, he became agitated he wanted it to seem like things were intense inside the cafe. He wasn't happy with the young waiter's demeanour. He gave the phone duties back to some of the female hostages after this. Things were pretty tense inside the cafe at this point. It was mid-afternoon. Hostages were sick from panic and worry, hungry and thirsty, needing the bathroom. Some were old, some were pregnant and some had heart conditions. Monis was once again snapping between half-reasonable and ultra-aggressive, grabbing hostages by the scruff when they'd moved from their designated spots or threatening to shoot others when he saw conversations he assumed to be escape plots. 
He was coordinating everything while maintaining the threat and trying with conversations through hostages and police negotiators to get his message out and have his demands met, murky as they both were. And there were hostages who had grown to think, going by the madman's demeanour, that if this was attacked by the Islamic State, then he was probably planning to kill them all. At least that's what John O'Brien the former tennis player, and Stefan Belafucius, one of the three barristers, began thinking. Monice had already been trying to knock old man O'Brien and white shirt down a peg, and O'Brien was getting on his nerves by refusing directives, maybe due to his age. Belafucius and O'Brien had spotted a small gap around 40 centimetres where they could potentially fit through, and beyond that, a green button that looked like it would open a pair of sliding doors. Belafucius did some internal recon, with some of the employees, but was unable to establish if the button would work. It was a gamble, and he and O'Brien discussed that if they managed to budge through and get to the button and it didn't work, Monice would likely shoot them in the back, as he'd threatened to do already on a few occasions. But they'd also come to the conclusion that if Monice was really going to release any hostages in good faith in order to get one of his demands met, it likely wouldn't be them, being men and clearly not his favourite people, and if it was legitimately an IS attack, this lunatic had no intention of leaving the cafe alive or leaving any of the remaining hostages alive either. So unbelievably, the pair made a break for it. John O'Brien, the crafty old ex-racket-toting, white-short-wearing pain in Monis's ass, slipped through the gap, pushed the button and cried for joy when it opened. He bolted through the open door and out into freedom. Stefan Balafutis got stuck in the gap for just a moment. Then he broke free, bolting through the doors behind O'Brien and to his own freedom. The remaining hostages and Monis heard the click of the doors and shifted their attention, shocked at what had occurred. Paulo Vassallo, the full-time food prepper at the cafe, went straight into fight-or-flight mode, his brain and body telling him to run for it. But it'd be suicide going for the same direction as the other two, as O'Brien and Balafutis went, with Monis now concentrated on that front entrance. So he made a break for the rear door through the kitchen, bursting out the fire door into the basically the arms of Alpha 2 police tactical team, who looked stunned to see him, exclaiming, where the fuck did you come from when he came out? And the three escapees are all assessed in the hostage reception area where they're debriefed. Vassallo is said to be babbling at the time and he's taken away for medical checks. He's adamant that there's no bomb in the gunman's backpack and stunned about the seeming lack of intention for the police to actually go in and engage the madman. O'Brien and Balafutis are questioned by the intelligence officers a little while longer. Balafutis, while happy to be free is riddled with guilt about leaving his two friends, Katrina Dawson and Julie Taylor, behind, but he concurs with Vassallo on the unlikelihood of the bomb in the backpack and agreed that Monis has no exit plan. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Back inside the cafe, the mood had really darkened significantly after this escape glow. Yeah, um, Moniz ordered the hostages con- to construct a barricade of sorts using the cafe chairs and tables. He then gets Marsha and Selena to make a spate of media calls, Facebook posts, reiterating his requests, demanding to speak the, to the Prime Minister and persisting with the bomb in the backpack threat. But by this point, hostages inside the cafe were doubting that there was even a bomb in there, going by how carelessly he was wearing it. I, most people would know how people would behave if they had a bomb in their backpack attached to them, but he'd be brushing up against walls at times without much care. He'd be sitting down with the bag compressing against the back of a chair, once again, without much consideration at all. Mm. With the unknown element of that bomb's existence, that was still the biggest threat from the police point of view. And that was their main consideration from the outside, this thing potentially going off if direct action was taken against Monus. With old man O'Brien and white shirt Balafutas gone, Monus turned the bulk of his angst towards Tory Johnson, who was the cafe manager. Monus threatened to shoot four hostages if the manager ran while going to the toilet. Johnson felt an overwhelming sense of responsibility for everyone's safety and said to the other employees at the time that he wouldn't run as it had put everyone at risk. Monus was growing increasingly agitated at this time but was still intent on getting his message out and securing a Daesh flag and speaking with the Prime Minister, all the while reiterating to the hostages that their government doesn't care about them and that they're basically full of lies Look at how they're treating them. He treats them better than their own government. I'm paraphrasing, but you get the gist. And April Bay, one of the young waitresses at the cafe, had been lying on the floor since the first escape and bit by bit decided to work one of the bolts off the lobby doors. At a moment when one of the other hostages were on the phone attempting to contact the media, talking loudly and relaying Moness' demands, the absolute badass slid the bolt free and on her hands and knees crawled silently out the door and down the lobby steps to freedom. Her co-worker Ali Chen crawled out quietly behind her and intelligently fought the urge to let the door go and run, instead taking her time to close the door silently behind her to not alert the gunman. Can you imagine? Mm. And it worked. The pair made it outside and ran into the arms of the tactical officers. This would be the widely circulated footage on television at the time, and you can still see the clips online. It's very powerful. The looks on these girls' faces as they escaped and ran to freedom, it's incredible. And what's perplexing after this, granted it's hindsight, 2020 and all that, how all of this wasn't weighed up by police at the time in their surmising of the situation inside the cafe uh, that's that's baffling, and it probably gets us a step closer to where the whole police response to this siege went horribly wrong. So moving on to the police and their response, researching the siege, reading the articles, watching the clips and labouring through the inquest findings afterwards, which were pretty intense, there's just an overwhelming sense of frustration at the police response and how befuddled it was. Caught up in protocols and command structure with no holistic or realistic views taken and a lack of ensuring the troops on the ground and the negotiators on the front line were properly equipped to deal with the threat. 
So we're going to touch on a few of the key areas that clearly highlighted this confusion at this point in the siege. There's more later as we move towards the culmination of the story. But within the New South Wales Police Command, there was a bit of a, a what I've written here is a schism, but uh, the, <laughs> the, the deputies um, to the commissioner were Catherine Byrne, who you mentioned earlier, Chloe, and a, a guy named Caldas. And these were, there was sort of effectively two camps within the state police, from what I understand, with Byrne being touted as the Commissioner Scipione's protege. Now, Caldas's involvement with this was minimal, but Caldas was a guy who had military experience, direct action in conflict zones in the Middle East. He spoke fluent Arabic. And, I mean, he was a deputy commissioner, and due to the internal conflicts and egos, it seems like his expertise was seemingly overlooked. And there were so many task force and people brought into this. The next up was the ADF's involvement or lack thereof, mm. a massive undercurrent of stepping on toes going on at this point. Tag East Commando Regiment were assembled on behalf of the PM and they formulated a direct action plan and basically simulated this a mock-up of the cafe at their barracks. This plan was reviewed and deemed feasible but was ultimately rejected in large part, I would say, due to the unconfirmed bomb threat but also the jurisdiction issues. Yes, yeah, so New South Wales Police did not want to relinquish control and there was even comments noted at the inquest between members of the police tactical squads that they were the best in the business and it would be bad for everyone's egos if they just stepped aside and handed it off to the ADF. The New South Wales Police knew that they were under-equipped, but for the Feds or the ADF to take the reins, New South Wales had to actually request for their assistance and effectively hand over control according to these protocols in place. So they continued with their contain and negotiate strategy that seemingly left out much, if any, of the negotiation. And despite not handing over control, it became evident help was needed. AFP was called in when the New South Wales police tech specialist failed to establish audio or video monitoring inside the cafe. AFP had more sophisticated equipment and managed to get a bug in place to capture conversation within the cafe, but it was delayed audio, which was barely audible at best, and sometimes delayed playback by three minutes and even up to 29 minutes at mm. some stages. But they could hear some of what was going on inside at least. At least half an hour later anyway. <laughs> ASIO also offered to help and get eyes and ears in the cafe it was later revealed at the inquest, but these offers were knocked back. Why would you say no to the preeminent spy agency in the country to help with this? I mean, it's literally their job, day in, day out, to get this kind of intel, and they would hands down be the most equipped. Uh, when I read that, I was, I was pretty baffled. But yeah. numerous other individuals offered assistance in negotiating with Monas, a guy named uh, Mamdua Habib, a lawyer named Manny Konditsis, and barrister Michael Kluster. He's the guy who bumped into Monas in the cafe before the siege. We mentioned that in the intro. Both of these guys had represented Monas before and the Grand Mufti of Australia, Ibrahim Abu Muhammad, also put his hand up to help. All of these offers were declined with police citing lack of control over what an untrained negotiator would say.
Okay, so we're back inside the cafe now. By this time, media reports were surfacing about the five escapees, which young Jared Wader would edit while reading to Mones that only three had escaped. He'd later find out that they'd used Mones' own words against him, effectively saying the police and the media were lying, trying to make a fool out of him. It was becoming increasingly apparent to the hostages that no negotiations were happening and they weren't going to let him speak to PM Abbott or deliver a flag. Moniz had put the two pregnant women, Julie Taylor and Selena Winpay, alongside him almost like shields. Mm. They were doing a lot of the media talking along with Marsha Mikhail. Young waiter Jared, who I must say from the research, he appeared to have played a pretty solid role within the siege, displaying some really quick thinking and intellect, if not a bit euphily brash at times. He does appear to have been a huge help in simmering a lot of the tensions, one such situation being when the hostages were holding the flags against the windows as the day wore on, with very little being achieved by way of contact and negotiations. Jared managed to convince Monas to have them tape the flag to the window so they could all sit down away and uh, have a bit of rest. In the timeline, we've moved into the evening now, so everyone's getting really tired inside. Negotiators have been working all day, and now we're going to be changing the guard to the next set of negotiators. Monas was frustrated by this point and display of uh, glowing Christmas lights outside. It was nearby. It was really starting to piss him off, and he demanded that the lights be turned off. The first negotiator thought it'd be a good chance to get in dialogue with Monas directly, strike up some bargaining and potential hostage releases. So he escalated these thoughts up the chain of command, but never heard back before he had the chance to hand over to the second relief team. And subsequently, the idea seemed to have been quashed and so he didn't even mention it to the relief team after that. And sometime later, the second negotiator, hears Selena Wenpei, relaying a message from Moness, why hadn't the damn lights been turned off yet, to which he had no friggin' idea about the original mm. request. It was later discovered at the inquest after the siege that the local electricity distribution team from Osgrid had been assembled to turn off the supply in that area, but they were sent home. Apparently, Moness had threatened to kill Selena after this demand wasn't met. But negotiators on the outside thought that this was a pretty empty threat and that he was just really a talker and not a doer. Psychologists were consulted and reported maybe, unsurprisingly, he was going for the grandiose martyr angle. He would be unlikely to actually commit a violent act and according to surveillance teams and negotiators, things were starting to simmer down inside the cafe. People were relaxing, settling in for the night. Moniz was allowing people to even be fed and have a drink. But these teams were missing what were apparent obvious signs of escalation inside. Now, I don't know if this was due to the poor audio quality they had or the delay, but things were anything but calm inside the cafe. Monist ordered hostages to call family members during the night, something that was later commented by experts at the inquest would be symbolic of an escalating situation, not a calming situation. But still, no action was taken by the police. The ongoing concern from New South Wales Police Command at this time was still the bomb factor. Direct action or DA plans proposed by the ADF and AFP were consistently knocked back due to this unknown and potentially catastrophic factor. But the police took hours after identifying Monis to search his apartment and computers for evidence of bomb-making paraphernalia. 
One reason cited for this was they were worried his partner, Emira Drudis, might stage her own siege at the apartment. But anyway, the feelings of dread, sickness, hopelessness that these hostages must have been feeling at the time is just something that's incredibly difficult to imagine, Chloe, as we come up to the end of the siege. Unimaginable. And by this point, we're at 2.03am, things were falling apart and he was losing it. Six out of the hostages fled from the building. Mones had fired a shotgun at them in the lobby area as they left. You can see footage of this online. It's terrible. And no police action at this point. At 2.11am, we're left with seven hostages inside at this point. Eight minutes later, Monas fires another shot in the direction of the kitchen and police hear him reloading at this point. How delayed this was, I don't know but we go back to the police declining the help from ASIO at this point and you have to question what might have transpired here had since prevailed over ego. Shortly after this, Fiona Ma escapes, leaving six in the building with Monis and finally, police tactical squads are ordered to move towards the two entrances but not to go in just yet. That would come after the first casualty. 2.14am, Monis executes Tory Johnson firing his shotgun into the back of the cafe manager's head. A police sniper sees this and calls hostage down. Three minutes later, police at long last storm the cafe, throwing 11 stun grenades and firing a total of 22 shots with M4A1 carbon rifles. A red laser from a police rifle tracked up Monis's body to his chest and a 5.56mm round hits his head exploding it on impact and his body crumpled to the floor of the cafe. Fragments from the 22 rounds fired by the police strike Louisa Hope in the foot, giving her minor injuries. Marsha McHale suffered shrapnel wounds to her legs as well. And Katrina Dawson, the barrister and mother, wouldn't be so lucky, unfortunately. She would later succumb to her wounds, which were caused by the police bullet fragments, uh, just after 3am in hospital. Police declared the siege over soon after, confirming that Manise was dead. Two hostages had died and another three were injured by police bullets. One of the police officers who stormed the cafe, Officer B, I think in the inquest he was named, also had a graze on his cheek that wasn't life-threatening. Now we get to the inquest. It was long and arduous and I would imagine an extremely emotional time, particularly for the Dawson and Johnson families. Covering some quick points from the inquest, it was noted that Monis's bullets, none of them, except for the one used to execute Tory Johnson, hit anyone else. Mitchell McAllister, who was a tactical assaulter with the 2nd Commando Tactical Assault Group, questioned the police use of the M4A1 carbines, particularly the rounds that they used. Um, it was essentially saying the Army advisors recommended slower, uh, bigger 9mm bullets for close quarters sort of combat like that. Uh, they complained about the co- cooperation from New South Wales Police and um, sort of suggested that they'd ignored their advice. I mean, the Army had had a lot of experience with these types of operations in Afghanistan, so you think they'd listen to them. You'd think, and I think this clip we're about to play really sums up all you need to know about the inquest. I think there was still great hope in the command centres that we could, as we have in the past with other sieges, contain and negotiate our way without the loss of life. But you're now saying that was a mistake? 
in hindsight with everything we know now, Sarah, is that we certainly should have gone in earlier. risks for the officers and the hostages were immense. However, I conclude that after a brief period to allow officers to gather relevant information, an emergency action ought to have been initiated following Minus's first shot at 2.03am. That event made it clear that negotiations had little or no chance of resolving the siege and that the hostages remaining in the cafe were at extreme risk of harm. The 10 minutes that elapsed without decisive action by police was too long. So at the start of the clip there, I think that was Mick Fuller, who was the operational commander at the time. Then we heard the shots from when the police stormed the cafe, and that was the coroner reading his finding at the end there. Chloe, there's a fantastic book on the Sydney Siege written by Deborah Snow. It's titled Siege, and it really delves into the individual stories of the hostages from an insider's perspective. It's pretty much the only book out there on the subject, and it was a great source of information for us in putting this episode together. So I'd certainly encourage people who are interested in the hostages stories to read this book for a greater insight into what they went through. Yeah, definitely. There's also a really good 60-minute story on YouTube worth watching which features the uh, Sydney Siege survivors uh, and Katrina and Tori's families talking about what they went through at the time and what they've dealt with since. It's emotional, to say the least. And uh, there's a bit at the end where Tori's partner Thomas spoke and uh, that really got me choked up when we watched that. But it's definitely worth a look for sure. Thousands of people flocked to the site in the days and weeks thereafter and flags threw at half-mast around Sydney. And another link to this was the I'll Ride With You campaign. So following the siege, there was concern about an increased potential violence directed at Muslims in Australia because of Munis' misguided attachment and alignment to spirituality and even the country he was born in. So a lot of people began using the hashtag I'll Ride With You on social media offering support to Muslims travelling alone on public transport by people tweeting their bus train route and suggesting that they would ride in solidarity with people who may be unfairly judged because of their nationality or religion. Yeah, that was great. I remember that happening. Mm. Um, Final thoughts about it all? Well, there was just so many lives affected in this story, so many people who went through hell and are still recovering and may never fully recover, and it's... At the time, it certainly instilled a lot of fear into all of us here in Australia, but the country's resolve in the face of this was really strong and it continues to be. And I think in researching this, I've really come to see that Monis would have fallen for any cause, this guy, any cause that would have made him feel like the big man that he wanted to be, but he wasn't. He was just an everyday man, not a good man by any stretch. And I think that's what makes the story so scary is that someone like Monis can have such an impact on so many lives, but he won't be remembered as he wished. He's no martyr, and I don't believe IS even ended up claiming this attack as they'd done with other lone wolf attacks. There'd be many more labelled terrorist attacks here in Australia in the years after this. You'd have the Parramatta shootings in 2015. There was a couple of stabbing attacks in Minto and Queanbeyan. 
Uh, another siege in, in Brighton, which is not far from us, Chloe. Um, there was a Mill Park stabbing and then a pretty uh, well-publicised Melbourne stabbing attack at the end of 2018. I will discuss the nature of the stabbing theme in more detail in our Patreon episode this week too, but really, that's about it when it comes to the Sydney siege, Chloe. Yeah, what a um, harrowing read and a mm-hmm. story that really sticks with you, but... Um, it's, I think, an important one to revisit and just to those people that um, lived it and maybe still live with what happened with it that, you know, I hope that they're getting support or have people around them to help them with this. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that we've just made it through the first episode on Skate. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it from us for the first one. Do you want to share any nice thoughts this week, Chloe, so we can lighten the mood at the end? Yeah, well, mine was going to be that we've gotten through our first episode. So. <laughs> Stole your thunder. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we have the same this week. <laughs> we want to thank everyone for listening into our first episode. Uh, we'll be back immediately on Patreon. We're going to burn the midnight to killer and do that now. So if you're interested in hearing a bit more about uh, the Endeavour Hill stabbings involving Numa Hader and we're going to delve a bit deeper into the murder of Helen Lee as well, jump on across to Patreon And that's pretty much it for us. We'll be back uh, next week with another case on uh, True Blue, True Crime. Thank you. Thanks, guys. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.